This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey guys, great to be together again for Calvary Online. I'm John. How do you feel about God? Not what do you think about God, not even what do you know about God, but how do you feel about him? Maybe you feel angry. A lot of people do. Happy? You could feel curious or perhaps even skeptical about God or distant from him. Maybe thankful? You could also feel, and many people do, afraid of God or intimidated by him. Now, our personal feelings about God aren't really what we want to inform our opinions about him. But our series, Greater Than, in the New Testament book of Hebrews today, continues in chapter 4 and 5 with one feeling all Christians can have about God. Confidence. Not fear, not intimidation, but confidence. Why? We're going to find three reasons why we can have confidence to be in God's presence in Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. So turn with me there. Hebrews is towards the end of the New Testament, and we'll begin towards the end of chapter 4 with three reasons why you can be confident in God's presence. First, there is one and only one great high priest with two relevant qualifications who wants to give you three generous gifts. One great high priest, two relevant qualifications, Three generous gifts. Let's begin in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since then, we have a great high priest. Now, that's not language we use a lot. A great high priest? What exactly is that? It's It is one of the main ideas in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest. After a little interlude in the rest of chapter 5, which we'll look at next week, and then chapter 6, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 all deal with in depth and detail the idea of Jesus as our great high priest. So if we don't cover all of it today, don't worry, we'll come back to it. We'll spend plenty of time unpacking what all of this means. But let's begin by talking about the context of these verses. When we open the Bible together, we always want to think about context. We never want to just pick a verse out of nowhere, not understanding the verses that come before it or after it, or not understanding the context of the book that it was written in. And especially important for us is to understand the context of the audience who was receiving these words. So what we know about the intended audience of the book of Hebrews is that they were Christians who had previously been Jewish. And they were familiar with all the rituals and traditions and structure of Jewish Old Testament ritual. And a high priest was a central figure in Old Testament Judaism. Now we hear high priest today, it sounds archaic. I mean, it doesn't even sound old-fashioned. It sounds ancient, totally out of touch with our present world. But in order for us to understand what this means and why we can have confidence 
to be in God's presence, we need a little bit of background. So the Jewish people began with a man named Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham and made a promise to him that he would have a family, a family so big that it would eventually outnumber the stars in the sky. Abraham had a son named Isaac and a grandson named Jacob. And both Isaac and Jacob and their families continued this family relationship with God. And God reaffirmed his promise and blessing to their family. And as a part of that, a part of his reaffirmation of the blessing and promise he had made to Abraham, he renamed Abraham's grandson Jacob to Israel. And Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons. You know some of their names, Judah, Benjamin, Levi, Joseph. His 12 sons became what's known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And these sons, these brothers, at one point got especially jealous of Joseph, their brother. And they actually sold him into slavery to get rid of him. And despite their sin, God remained faithful to his promise to this family. Joseph ended up in Egypt, became a great leader there, and when a famine struck the land that Israel and his 11 sons lived in, they came to Egypt seeking help. And they had no idea that Joseph had become such an influential leader there. So Joseph recognized his brothers when they came before him and and then eventually brought his whole family to Egypt and fed them and gave them land to live on and to work. And for hundreds of years, this family grew from about 70 people to a massive nation, fulfilling in part God's promise to Abraham that he would multiply and be a nation. And they fell ultimately into slavery and bondage in Egypt because the Egyptian leaders became jealous of them. And there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph and this family and and the bond that they had once had. And then they are miraculously delivered by God and through a man named Moses, who has appeared a couple times in Hebrews. And we've talked about him the last few times we've been together. And Moses had a brother named Aaron. Both Moses and Aaron were descendants of Levi, Israel's son, Levi. And God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, Then bring near to you, Moses, Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons. So then, all the male descendants of Aaron were set apart by God as priests. Now, what does a priest do? Look closely with me at chapter 5 and verse 1 of Hebrews, which says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. A priest was like a go-between, an intermediary, someone who was appointed to act on behalf of men and women in relation to God, to stand between them, to sort of mediate their relationship. Why was that necessary? Because, as the end of this verse says, a priest would offer sacrifice for sins. All men and all women have sinned and fallen short of God and his glory. So, once a year, a single high priest appointed from Aaron's descendants would enter the tabernacle or the temple, the place where the presence of God dwelled on the earth, 
And that high priest would offer an animal sacrifice to God on behalf of the people for their sins. This would happen on what was known as the Day of Atonement. You may have heard it called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. This sacrifice from the high priest would atone for or pay the penalty for the sins of the people. Now, this Old Testament system no longer exists. The temple, the only place where this sacrifice could occur on the earth, was destroyed shortly after the death of Jesus in about 70 A.D. And what we're going to see through the explanation of the author of Hebrews as this unfolds through several chapters ahead of us is that Jesus is our one and only great high priest. The whole system that existed before him is no longer necessary. He and he alone is greater than any earthly priest could ever be. And all of that Old Testament system, all that tradition and ritual, all those sacrifices, all those high priests, the Day of Atonement, all of that existed to point towards Jesus. And he is now the only one we need. So we don't have time to unpack all of that, but we will as this argument unfolds and as we continue our series and study in the book of Hebrews. What our author begins to do in our verses today is to introduce this idea of Jesus as our one and only great high priest. And he goes on to describe Jesus's relevant qualifications for that role. And there are two of them. First, A priest must be sympathetic towards men and women. Verses 2 and 3 talk about this. It says, He, and this is speaking of the earthly high priest, not Jesus, he can deal gently with the ignorant. Those are people who don't yet know God. They are ignorant of God. And he can deal gently with the wayward, those who do know God but are drifting from him or who are disobeying God, since... The priest himself is beset with weakness. A priest is naturally sympathetic towards men and women because he is one. He gets it. He understands what it is to be human. He is beset with weakness. And because of this, because the priest is beset with weakness, he is obligated first to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Of course, these high priests who came before Jesus were imperfect. They needed forgiveness just like everybody else did. So compare these earthly high priests who came before Jesus with our great high priest. Verse 15 of chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. While the earthly high priests were beset with weaknesses because of their own personal sin, Jesus is without sin. He is sinless. But that doesn't mean that he does not understand what it means to be human. He is, to kind of correct the double negative of this verse, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses Because he knows what it's like. He knows and understands temptation. Now, some would say, how could he truly know temptation if he never sinned? The one who has persevered in the face of temptation, never giving in, knows the pressure better than anyone. Who knows what it's like to run a marathon? 
the guy who signs up last minute gets the t-shirt and then bails at mile five, or the woman who actually crosses the finish line. Who knows what it's like to climb Mount Everest, the one who owns all the books and seen all the and has seen all the movies? Or Kami Rita, the Nepalese Sherpa who has summited Mount Everest a record 25 times. Jesus, our great high priest, triumphed over temptation. And so he gets it. He understands what we go through, our weaknesses that we deal with. And he is compassionate. He is sympathetic towards all of us who struggle. I mean, look at verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. That's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 8, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus felt pain and sorrow, suffering and sadness. He is a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. That's Jesus. Now, why does it say there that that he learned obedience through what he suffered? Was Jesus disobedient at any point in his life? Has Jesus ever been disobedient? No, of course not. It means It means that he gained real life experience, that he gained knowledge about what it actually means to be a human and face the pressure of temptation, to know what it is to suffer. So we can never say that God doesn't know what it's like to be me. We have a God who can relate to us, who truly knows what it's like in the day to day. I am so thankful for our sympathetic Savior. For our one and only great high priest. And that's his first relevant qualification. That he is sympathetic towards men and women like me and like you. The second is that he is appointed by God. Sympathetic towards men and appointed by God. Back in verse 1 of Hebrews 5, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men, is appointed to to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then verse 4 continues, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The role of priest is one appointed by God, People weren't supposed to run for priestly political office or conspire to get the job. This calling was an appointment reserved for those who were a part of Aaron's family, set apart for service, Aaron's descendants. And just like the earthly high priests, Jesus was appointed for this work, which we read about in verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Check out the family qualifications for Jesus. Just as the sons of Aaron were the ones with the relevant qualifications to serve as high priest, Jesus is qualified as the one and only great high priest because of who he is, the only begotten son of God. 
That's Jesus's second relevant qualification, that he is appointed by God. Now, the author used the title Christ at the beginning of verse 5. That's our English word for Messiah, the promised deliverer for God's people. And so, he is not only appointed by God, he is anointed by God. That's what Messiah or Christ means. And those who were appointed by God to serve as priests would be anointed with oil. And the purpose of that was to point to the promised anointed one, the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins once and for all. This is why Jesus is so much more qualified as the great high priest than the ones that came before. He is appointed by God as his son and anointed by God as the Messiah. And then there is one final mysterious part of Christ's appointment. Check out verse 10 of chapter 5. It says that Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is kind of an obscure Old Testament character. He shows up seemingly out of nowhere in chapter 14 of Genesis with Abraham. He's the first priest mentioned in the Bible, and we don't hear from him again until he's mentioned in Psalm 110, which was quoted earlier in this chapter in verse 6, where it says, quote, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a whole chapter, chapter 7 of Hebrews, about Melchizedek that's to come. So we'll spend more time about this mysterious, obscure character then. But just notice that because Melchizedek comes out of nowhere in Genesis, and then we don't hear from him again, David, who wrote Psalm 110, describes the priestly order of Melchizedek as eternal. So the appointment of Jesus as our great high priest in that priestly order of Melchizedek is a forever appointment, an eternal appointment by God. One great high priest, two relevant qualifications, and three generous gifts. Those gifts are found in verse 16 of chapter 4, which says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The first of these generous gifts is grace, unmerited favor. It's like getting something that we don't deserve. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. God gives it to us. That's grace. For it is by grace you have been saved. And this is the gift of God not as a result of work, so that no one would boast. That's the gift of grace. And grace is the adjective used to, to describe God's throne. But when we think about thrones, they are sort of universally understood to represent power and authority, not grace. Thrones are intentionally meant to be impressive and imposing. They are meant to intimidate us. When a king or queen is seated on their throne in the throne room, there's no question if you're in that room who's in charge. But God's throne is a throne of grace that we can approach confidently. 
because he gives us grace through his son, our one and only great high priest. Now, the second gift that we read about in verse 16 is mercy. So if grace is getting something that we don't deserve, then mercy is like not getting what we do deserve. God gives us mercy because we deserve to pay for our sins. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve because of our sin. Separation from God, punishment because of our sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the gift of mercy. When we don't get what we deserve, we receive the gift of mercy. And the third gift is help. Help in our time of need. God has always been known as a help to his people. Psalm 46 verse 1 says that God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in our time of trouble. So grace, mercy, help. Three gifts that God generously offers to you. Have you received them? Have you taken God's offer of grace and mercy and help given through his son, Jesus? If you have, he has become, according to verse 9, your source for eternal salvation. The perfect, obedient son of God has become your personal source for eternal salvation. The one and only great high priest appointed by God and sympathetic towards men, gives us three generous gifts of grace, mercy, and help. And so, as verse 16 of chapter 4 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us draw near in God's presence with confidence, not intimidation, not fear. If fear or intimidation of a person or a place causes us to turn around and run the other way, confidence causes us to come closer, to draw near. And this is the call of God through his son, Jesus. That if you have trusted in him to be your source of eternal salvation, your feeling towards God can be one of confidence to enter his throne room, to approach the throne of grace because he has freely given you that gift through his son, Jesus Christ our one and only great high priest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your free offer of mercy, of grace, of help in our time of need. We thank you that you stand between us and God, that you have laid your life down for us so that we might live forever with you. I pray for any friend who is watching or listening today, who is afraid of God, intimidated by God, I pray that you would speak powerfully through your words and call them to draw near to the throne of grace by your power and save them through your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of our one and only great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Amen.